There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've turned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Kareth Foster. Some of you may know her from her time on The Howard Stern Show as a contributor on Imus in the Morning, or her appearances on Comedy Central, Fox and Friends, or MSNBC. Others may know her as a guest on The Oprah Winfrey Show and for Showtime at the Apollo Theater. Still, others of you may know her for her two hit documentaries, Can We Take a Joke and No Safe Spaces. Kareth Foster is a diversity engagement specialist and creator of the groundbreaking Inversity Methodology and other signature programs. She's creating a seismic shift in diversity and culture change in academic institutions, organizations, and corporations across America. The new conversations she's leading are revolutionizing how we address diversity and leadership. As a speaker, humorist, TV and radio personality, author, entrepreneur, wife, and mother, Kareth Foster is a positive force of change with her sense of duty, service, and riotous sense of humor. Kareth Foster, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Chris. You know, we've had, been on the show now for about two and a half years, and I don't know if I've ever had an introduction like that. That's just, it's all over the place and just really looking forward to our conversation today. So, you know, to that point, there's so much to talk about that it's hard to know where, where for us to start. So let's start with an inflection point in your career and life. You were brought on to be co-host of the Imus in the Morning show in an incendiary moment with the nation's eyes on its host, Don Imus. What happened? Why the show's host producers and management turned to you? And how'd you change that dialogue? Um, that's an excellent question. So just to give people a little bit of my background, um, I started my career in broadcasting. That's actually what I got my degree in. I moved to New York City to work for The View. Uh, so Barbara Walters was my first big boss out of, out of college. And while I was there, I found stand-up comedy, or rather it found me. And um, I was in between pursuing that. I, I left The View. I was pursuing stand-up, working in corporate America and human resources. I had a, a double life, if you will. And I just left corporate America to do uh, start a production company. And I get a call saying, um, you interested in a radio TV opportunity? And I said, of course, you know, who, who wouldn't be? Um, and they said, oh, by the way, it's with Imus. And I remember going um, nappy-headed hose, I meant, because <laughs> that was the remark heard around the world. And I remember watching it when it like, like blasted across the airwaves um, in April of 2007. And I just remember thinking when I, I saw it on the news, I should have been there. I should have been there to have this conversation with him because I saw it from multiple perspectives, right? I saw it from a comedian who was riffing and doing something off the cuff. And I saw it from a black woman um, who was like, oh, wow, I can't believe you went there. Like, do you understand what you said? And to this day, as colorful a character as he was, um, I, I don't think he really knew what he was saying. That doesn't um, recuse him from his responsibility of, of owning what he said. But he, you know, th that was not the lingo that he is used to, that he, that he knew. And I think he was trying to be hip and cool. And it was just the perfect scenario of an old rich white guy saying something completely inappropriate and a slow news day. 
And so I got the call to come on um, as a Black woman, as a performer, a comedian, uh, to have a national dialogue about race and racism in America. And I remember being very torn about it. You know, am I going to join forces with one of the most reviled men in the media, putting, you know, myself, my reputation, my career at stake? Or is this an opportunity to be a voice where there is a deficit, right? And to be a voice of reason and be a voice um, of example, you know, because at the time, Oprah didn't have her daily show anymore. There was no Oprah after the show. She didn't have her own network. There was no Shonda Rhimes or Viola Davis. You know, there, there was very limited um, representation of Black women who weren't the stereotype. And so I thought, wow, this is an opportunity to be a beacon of light and truth that I'd always wanted to do and be in my career, which is why I entered into media in the first place. Um, and I, I talk about it in my TED Talk, and I share about what that experience was like. And, you know, so much of it was about, you know, having a voice and using it. You know, you talk about the demographic and the listeners and the, you know, the old rich white man. I'm just typical listener, according to demographic surveys, was a 47-year-old white male. What was the reception from his audience as you were there to try to mend his image and create a dialogue about diversity and sensitivity? I went over really well. Like, they love me. And it's probably because I grew up, I grew up in Plano, Texas, right? And another thing, though, like, number one rule in comedy was to be funny, but it's know your audience, right? And I was able to just be me, which was what was so wonderful about that opportunity. You know, I didn't have to change who I was. Um, I didn't have to pretend to be something I wasn't. I got to go on as Kareth. And, um, you know, I'm very fortunate. I've had a very, um, you know, fortunate upbringing. I, I went to private schools. I have two incredible parents who are still married, you know, 56 years. Um, you know, and I, I was able to, to bring that side of things, but I was also able to articulate the side that people may not see because it's not part of their experience, but do it again in a language that reaches everyone. You just mentioned growing up in Plano, Texas, you're the daughter of a woman with her own impressive resume. Your mom was the editor in chief of a national publication, Minority Business News, and the co-founder of the Minority Business Hall of Fame. Yes. Tell us about growing up in Plano and what it was like having her as, as your mother and a role model. Oh, my gosh. Well, and, and she's a NASA award recipient. So, like, you know, big high heels to fill <laughs> or in Texas cowboy boots. <laughs> uh, so my mom is incredible. And I wish she would give herself more credit for the things that she's done and accomplished. Um, she's very, very humble. And my father, too. You know, my father... Um, I can't say it was just one versus the other. You know, my dad played such an incredible role in my life, um, coaching my soccer team, you know, helping with the math homework. He was the, the math guy, computer guy. She was obviously the former librarian and English person. So I had that, that good balance. Um, but both of my parents have an incredible sense of humor and an incredible drive and respect for education. And what I really appreciate about what they did was instilling in me a sense of of self and of pride, not a sense of, um, you know, arrogance, but rather understanding where we come from, you know, who our people are, you know, the, you know, just knowing that the, the, the people who've come before me and my family were so accomplished and so incredible. And it was never, there was never going to be an excuse of not being able to do something because you were black or because you, you know, had, poor people in your family at one point in time. Um, that was never part of the equation. It was be proud of who you are and own it and know that that's not the only thing that defines you. 
And I have to ask all of my guests I have on the show from Texas, one very important question. How about them Cowboys? Ah, how about them Cowboys getting ready to go to the Super Bowl? I mean, look. Fingers crossed. They looked good last night. We'll take it. We can keep it going. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so you attended and graduated from Stevens College, the second oldest women's educational establishment in America that is still a women's college. Fellow graduates include a number of famous actresses and broadcast journalists, including Paula Zahn, Jennifer Tilly, Annie Potts, and for our older audience members, Don Wells, who co-starred in Gilligan's Island. I guess that's directed at me. <laughs> and, and stage film and TV star Patricia Berry. Did you choose Stevens College because of its pedigree in that realm? So it was funny. I So I was supposed to have gone to an all-girls high school. I was supposed to go to Ursuline um, here in Texas. My brother actually went to Jesuit, which was single sex. Now, before I'd gone to a single sex school, I would have said, you know, never, ever. It was one of the best things I could have ever done. Um, but I chose Stevens because I was torn about what I wanted to do when I graduated. I'm like, do I want to go into theater? Do I want to go into broadcasting? And they had both an incredible theater program as well as a broadcast journalism program. And actually, to this date, they still have the largest television studio in the entire state of Missouri. Um, even all of the news channels don't have a studio that big. So to be able to go in there and, and get that and awesome training and have that background. And I was a double major in the beginning. I, I did have to drop the theater because I thought, oh, I want to make money when I graduate, not knowing that journalists make nothing starting out. <laughs> but that was a track I picked and I've, I've kind of, I'm still on that track. So after you, after Stevens College, you went to St. Peter's College at Oxford University. And then you mentioned before you worked in production at ABC on The View. Uh-huh. How'd you land that job? Um, you know, what did they say about success? 75% of who you know. So one of my very best friends, um, we were friends a freshman year of college and we're friends to this day, uh, was working for the Barbara Walters uh, production company, Barwall. And so she had the inside scoop that Barbara was getting ready to start this new daytime show. So she calls me up one day and um, I was actually working on ABC affiliate. I know I'd actually moved back to Texas for a little while, figuring out what I was going to do. And she says, Kara, you've got to get on a plane tomorrow. Barbara's starting this new show. You've got to interview. So I'm like, mm, no, terrified of New York. <laughs> Even though I lived in Europe, I traveled on the scared to death of New York City. She's like, you have to come. So my mother was like, you're going. Buys me a ticket that day. I fly up the next day. I interview. The day after that, two weeks later, I get a call saying I got it. And two weeks later, I'm in my little Volvo named Jacqueline driving to New York City to work for The View which didn't even have a name at the time. I mean, it was a startup show, which meant 14, 16 hour days, like no life whatsoever. But it was an incredible training ground for so many of the things that I've done, um, you know, learning how to produce and write and book and, you know, being part of that production team from the ground up. Uh, to this day, I have incredible relationships and friendships with people. And now anytime I do anything that requires production, I, I'm an asset to the other producers because I, I know what they need and I, I know how to deliver. So that's a professional lesson that you learned in that role. Were, were there any life lessons? Yeah, there were life lessons that when something does not sit right for your soul, you need to leave. And while I love that job and I love the people that I worked for, um, I, I was missing out on the being able to be creative. And that was the part of my soul that wasn't being recognized. And 
I don't know if you remember the film, The Devil Wears Prada. There's a line that multiple characters repeat uh, to Anne Hathaway. And she even says it, I think, you know, a million girls would kill for this job. Why are you miserable? And that was me. And I was terrified to leave because who leaves Barbara Walters, right? But I also knew it wasn't where I was supposed to be. And it was really, really hard. Um, but, you know, all good things come to an end. And again, grateful for that experience, grateful to have her as a mentor. Um, you know, she she was she was legendary. Um, she and I mean she just passed at 93 years old. Like, I mean, she's she's a legend. She really cleared the path for so many incredible people. And I'm I'm eternally grateful that I had that opportunity. You started doing stand-up comedy and that opened a lot of doors for you. But during your time in radio and television, you saw firsthand what you describe as diversity gone wrong. What happened and what did you do as a result? Sure. So, you know, I hadn't thought much about diversity while I was doing stand-up. I mean, what I knew was people wanted to put me in a box, right? Um, because I was Black um, and pretty much that was it. Like, you know, they wanted me to audition for certain parts, which I, I got. But the wild thing is, you know, I would go out for these voiceovers, especially. This was the, the best part. I go out for voiceovers and it would be for an African-American role, right? Air quotes. And I would speak like I'm speaking now, which is how I've always spoken. And they would be terribly disappointed <laughs> because that wasn't what they wanted, right? So instead of saying, you know, can you sound blacker? Because that's not politically correct. Even back in like the 90s and early 2000s, they'd say, can you jazz it up a little? I'm like, so you want me to scat? <laughs> like, <laughs> one person actually said, look, Kareth, what we're going for is an urban sound. Can you do that? I'm like, I can do suburban for you. Will that work? <laughs> and so I, you know, I kind of knew going in, like, especially in entertainment, like people want, they want the, the sandwich, right? The same sandwich they want, maybe want it, you know, different layers of, of the meat and the cheese and the lettuce and tomato, but they want to know what they can sell. So everybody's always looking for like the next Chris Rock, right? Or the next Amy Schumer or the next Kevin Hart. Um, and so you have to be able to break out of that shell and be like, look, this is who I am. I'm an individual. And, you know, but at the time when I kind of got into it, you know, the big black comedians were like the Samores and the Moniques. And, and I love and appreciate those women, but that wasn't my style. You know, I didn't have that same life experience. Um, I didn't have the quote unquote black scent, right? And people did not know what to do with me, which is actually part of why I think I really got Imus because I, I fit in, you know, as I said in my TED talk, I was black, but not too black, as they say. Um, which I think is ridiculous because how insulting that we define somebody by how they sound or how they look or the color of their skin. I mean, you know, this was exactly what Dr. King, who we just celebrated, was was trying to say, like, let's judge people by what they have to offer, by the content of their character, not necessarily their outside package. And that was what really kind of got me focusing on on diversity and like what was happening in corporate America? What was happening on college and university campuses? And, you know, coincidentally, there was another incident that involved a Rutgers University student in 2010. Um, it was tragic. A young man by the name of Tyler Clemente took his life by jumping off the George Washington Bridge. And um, he did this because he was outed by his roommate and several peers. And I just remember thinking it, how heartbreaking, how heartbreaking that anybody would feel that alone um, 
for whatever it was, they felt set them apart from the status quo, whether it was their sexuality, whether it was their socioeconomic status, the religion they practice, um, you know, anything that had to do with who, who they were and how they felt about themselves. Nobody should have to go through that. So that was the catalyst for starting something that I initially called Stereotyped 101, which was programming that I did take to colleges and universities um, because I thought that I have to help. I have to be able to do something. I have to teach people that they are enough um, and that they have purpose. You know, they wouldn't be here if they didn't. And the more I started doing colleges, universities, the more I started getting calls for, hey, do you do this for corporations too? Um, because once those people leave college and university, where do they go? They go into the workforce. And so, you know, similarly, there, there needed to be, there was a void that needed to be filled about diversity and inclusion and belonging that wasn't about pitting people against one another, which is what traditional DEI work does. And I, I, I find it atrocious. I mean, for now, what, six, seven decades, we've been having diversity efforts and programming, and we're still having to have it because something's not working, something's not clicking. And for me, the observation I made is even the word diversity, right? The root of it is DIV, divide, which is the beginning of the word division, divorce. And we're shocked calling it diversity that people aren't coming together. Like, really? Hello, it's so obvious. Um, which is why I coined the term inversity. Um, inversity is still the acknowledgement and celebration and honoring of all that we bring to the table, you know, who we are, our background, our heritage, our identity, but shifting the focus from what separates and divides us to what do we have in common? How can we be truly inclusive of one another? But most importantly and, and powerfully, how can we be introspective, right? Understand your value and worth so you can then see it in somebody else. Stop working from the outside in, trying to change people's minds and belief systems. That's never going to happen. But if you can work from the inside out and make a connection between the heart and mind, that's where real change happens. So you've joked that you're not a diversity denier. And so you, <laughs> believe, you said you believe there's a quote, an ever present need to address diversity, inclusion, and effective communication. Why don't you talk about and address those issues? Well, I think it's important for people to understand history, for people to understand um, systems that have been set up and have been put in place that have um, really put people at a disadvantage, whether it be for their skin color, their socioeconomic status or their gender. Like we, we can't say that that is just water under the bridge. Right. There's still stuff that is happening that is leaving people out because of those things, systems that have been in place. Now, the idea is to see what those systems are and neutralize them, right? Not overcorrect, so we're doing the exact opposite to the other people, right? The idea is how do we teach people how to value one another, not on, again, their physical appearance, their ethnicity, their sexuality, their gender, but seeing someone as a fellow equal human being so that we can move forward in conscious communication and awareness, right? And of course, you know, create a space of true belonging, right? Where I think, you know, one of the things that people mistake when they think they're gonna bring in a diversity program and it's gonna be successful, people think it's a two-way street. And it's, it's not, first of all, it's a six lane highway, okay? <laughs> but the two-way street that people get caught up on is A, thinking that diversity is solely about ethnicity, or gender or sexuality, right? And that if you have diversity programming, it's only going to be successful if everybody 
agrees in the end, if everybody's on the same page. That's the antithesis of what true diversity is. So we need to firstly expand the definition of diversity to include diversity of thought and ideas. Um, there are so many aspects of things that make us diverse, right? From our political views to neurodiversity, which is a huge one right now. Um, you know, the languages we speak, our nationalities, um, you know, we, we siphon people into these, these pigeonholes and these categories, and it's terribly unfair because we're not one-dimensional beings. We're not even two-dimensional. You know, this idea that, you know, you only have to represent one aspect of yourself or be seen as one thing, I, I think it's very limiting. And we're unlimited. And I think a lot of people forget that sometimes. You believe there's a surprising lack of diversity within diversity conversations. I just think that's so ironic. How is Isn't that? it? <laughs> Isn't it though? How is that? It's just what I touched on. You know, I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, if people don't think differently about something, they're always going to stay on the same track, right? I, I like to think of this, like the analogy I make about what I do within the diversity conversation is, you remember back in the day, now I know we're probably close to the same age. And when growing up, you would take a shower and you had a shower curtain and you had that straight rod. And if it was a really powerful stream, whether at your house or at a hotel, like the, the shower curtain would stick to you. And it was not a pleasant experience. I mean, yeah, you got clean, but like, it was just annoying. And then a few years ago, some genius, right? Who we all wish we were because we'd be living on our own private island, put a curve in the shower curtain rod, right? That's what I do with the diversity, inclusion and belonging conversation. I'm not saying that we can't still get in the shower because we do. We need to get clean. <laughs> we need to have that refreshing experience, but we can do it in a totally different way that changes the experience so that A, everybody's included in the conversation. Because with traditional DNI, you know, what I find is there's a lot of making people victims or making people villains. And I don't know who wants to be enrolled in a conversation like that. Most people don't. And I think that's why people are DEI'd out. I think people are exhausted. I think people are done. And, you know, it's not that we shouldn't be talking about this stuff. We should, but we can be doing it in a way more engaging and thoughtful and empathetic way so that nobody's seen as an outcast. Nobody's, you know, put up on a pillar. Um, and I think that's just kind of been the unfortunate scenario that's happened with a lot of DEI, not because people's hearts aren't in the right place, but maybe they just haven't been encouraged to to see what wasn't working, to see where there was a deficit, to see why, you know, like that's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same results. And that's what we've been doing, hopefully until now with adversity. Why do you use humor to lead discussions about such a serious and controversial topic as diversity? I use humor because when you, I, I, I just believe this, if you can laugh at something, you can get through it. And humor is not just an incredible tool for education. Um, there are there's science that backs this up. Um, neuroscience as well. You know, there are rewards that happen inside the brain when we laugh. The dopamine, the um, the happy serotonin chemicals that get released. And you know what? When people are laughing, they're they're in a neutral space, right? Traditional DNI has people on the offense or the defense, right? because they know that at some point in the conversation, it's gonna get uncomfortable. It's a very personal conversation. So where are they gonna be put in it? 
Um, but if you can create a neutral space where people are open to having the aha moments, open to the epiphanies, open to hearing someone else's experience without it feeling like an attack, oh my gosh, the whole world is open now. And, and that's where you know, the breakthroughs occur for people to be like, you know what? I hadn't even thought about it like that before. Now I'm going to apply that later on or now. And of course, beyond humor, there are people who deliberately say hateful things. Where do you draw the line between free speech and hate speech? And how do we decide what we shouldn't, can't, and won't tolerate? This is always a touchy topic, right? Because free speech is, it's a, it's a big deal right now, free expression. Um, I am a proponent of free speech. That doesn't mean I like hate speech or encourage it, but I would certainly rather have people say what they're thinking and feeling than have them A, go underground with it. Right. But B, if we're not talking to one another, if we're not having open communication, then there's no way to even come to a resolution. Right. And that doesn't mean that that person's always going to think and believe that way. But if we shut people down instantly because we don't like what they said, um, who's to say that it's not going to turn on us one day because someone doesn't like what we said? And there are a lot of people who, you know, do get up in arms. Well, people shouldn't be allowed to say that or, or use that language. Um, again, you know, uh, there are things that I hear people say that I do not care for, but I don't feel that I have the right to tell them they can't say that. Um, because again, <clears throat> that could turn on to me and I want to have the right to say everything that I wish to say. Now, words are powerful without question. Words are powerful, but they're also only as powerful as we let them be. And to that point, how should we deal with hate speech or should we punish it? I mean, look, there, there's always going to be consequences, right? In society, within families. I mean, my kids cannot come upstairs and bust in my office and start dropping F-bombs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're going to get grounded. You're going to get no dessert. You're not going to get TV. Um, it's the same with when they're com private companies, right? Um, you know, there's they're going to have a, a set of, of rules or a set of guidelines. Um, they're going to have values that they hope to instill and things that are considered acceptable and not. And it, you have the freedom to go against that. Just understand there will and likely will be consequences. Now, when it is a public forum, um, when it is an educational institution, a government organization that's not a private company, you know, the rules are a little bit different. Um, I, I think, you know, it's it's obviously it's, it's a very stressful conversation because there are people who want to kind of push the push the line. Um, but they're also it's fascinating how, you know, in a world post COVID or post George Floyd. Right. Um, how so many people are almost going out of their way to look to be offended versus saying, wait a second, that's another side of an argument. Why don't we hear this out? It's like Socratic debate has completely gone out the window. And when that's considered hate speech, when someone just sharing their opinion about something is considered hate speech, like that's where I think, you know, we, this hypersensitivity, this hypervigilance over that, that's where we're running into some problems. We've been talking to Kareth Foster. Stay with us. We'll be right back to talk about how she develops her materials how she keeps her audiences engaged and inspired, and how she keeps it all together. We'll be right back.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is diversity engagement specialist, speaker, humorist, TV and radio personality, author, entrepreneur, wife, and yes, mother, Kareth Foster. There's just so much there. How did you do it. that in, all one, in one breath? Like, that was impressive. <laughs> I've been practicing. <laughs> With as much stand-up comedy and public speaking as you do, you obviously need a lot of material. How do you develop your materials for both comedy and your presentations? Oh my gosh. You know what? I think so much of it is just being an observer, right? An observer of life, um, being present in my relationships. Um, you know, I jokingly say I married my muse. My husband is an Australian. I don't know if you know Aussies, but they have no filter whatsoever. Um, and so I have two children that are half comedians, half Australian. <laughs> and the comedy writes itself. Um <laughs> But I, I see think, a sitcom here somewhere in there. Right. Oh, no, without question. Without <laughs> probably called the least likely. We, we're, we're working on that. Um, but I, I just think, first of all, like I said, I, I grew up in a family that laughed a lot. Like I used to think that the Cosby show had secret cameras in our house because the episodes were so similar to what was happening in our life. And um, and I just think like humor is healing. It's cathartic. And I can't imagine not laughing. Um, not being able to find, because life is hard and comedians know that most comedy comes from pain, right? Which is also why it's universal because everybody feels pain. Everybody has highs and lows. And if you can laugh at it, you can get through it. And and that's one of the things that connects us, right? Because it's not always easy. Um, you know, we have tragedy, we have disappointments, but if you can find the humor in that and the healing in it, 
then, I mean, what, what a, a setup for, for success in your life and for happiness. And how much time do you have to devote to developing materials and how much time to devote to your practice? So I really don't do stand-up as much. Ironically, though, I'm getting ready to go headline for a town in Ohio because I couldn't find clean comics. <laughs> so I'm kind of quasi coming out of retirement. I, I definitely do more speaking than comedy, but I don't feel like I really left the comedy world because every time I give a keynote, every time I do a workshop, I always incorporate humor. So it's just like this kind of secret weapon that I have, you know, this Trojan horse. Um, and it, it makes it just so much more fun and engaging. And, and you know, nobody wants to sit in front of another person, having them wag their finger in their face and lecture them. Nobody wants that ever. Right. Whatever the topic is, leadership and development, diversity and inclusion, um, belonging, you know, teaching people how to be master communicators themselves. You know, everything that I do has humor touched on it, like a little fairy dust. Right. And what advice do you have for someone who wants to break into the comedy business and for someone who has to give presentations every now and then in their current job and just wants to be better at what they do? My advice would be if you thought about it. If that idea has come to your mind, then there's a possibility of it happening. Um, now you have to take action, right? But I think it all starts with thinking it, speaking it, and writing it down. And then create action steps for yourselves. Like you want to do stand-up comedy? Find an open mic, right? When something funny comes to your head, you better write that down. Because if you don't, it will go out just the same way. I know a lot of comics who keep, you know, their phone by their bed. You really shouldn't do that with the EMFs, but whatever. Uh, notebook, right? Um, you know, sometimes I have to pull over when I'm driving because I'm like, oh, that's a really great idea. Because uh, you never know when inspiration is going to hit you. If you want to be a speaker, think of the things that you are an expert um, what subject matter you're an expert in, you know, or if you've never spoken before, there are different organizations that you can join. Toastmasters are things, you know, you can get up and, and start speaking at places like your church or organizations you belong to. Like, there's always a way to make something happen. There's always a way to, to realize your goal. And, you know, the number one thing that I say, and I, I talk about this in my book, you can be perfect or you can be happy is you have to say yes. You have to say yes to yourself because if you don't say yes, um, nothing will happen. Everybody else can say no to you, but that doesn't mean you have to take that as a no. If you say no, then it's done. It's dead in the water. But if you say yes, something magical happens. It's like the golden key to the city of your life, right? When you say yes and you turn that key the universe, God, source, whatever you want to call it, steps in to assist you. And you might start meeting the right people. You start having the right opportunities, the materials that you need come in front of you, the article that you needed to read. Um, it is phenomenal how powerful just saying yes to yourself can be. I love what you just said a moment ago. And it's so simple. There's always a way. You know, we're all facing different challenges and, and, and sufferings right now. Uh, the world's a lousy place, you know, at the moment. Um, and, and people are struggling, we know, with inflation, the economy, and just, you know, keeping that positive spin of there's always a way. There's always a way. You know, the show's about empowerment and leadership through adversity and just something as simple as that, I think, are, are words to live by. So thank you for sharing that. So you've, you're known for leaving your audiences feeling engaged, connected to others, and inspired. Is there a story or two about people that you've inspired that really touch you? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many stories. I mean, one of my favorite stories about the power of humor was a show that I did years ago back in Bud Lake, New Jersey. At a, It was a castle called the Pax Amicus Theater. And during the day, they put on programming for children, plays. And at night, they would use it for theater. And every now and then, they'd have comedy shows. And this one show I was on called Ladies of Laughter. It was four women. And we all had equal time. And it was a show that had a little bit of an intermission, but no alcohol whatsoever. And it was three of my friends from New York City, and we just killed it. Like we, that's a term in comedy for like, you rock the house. And afterwards, people are coming up going, oh, that was so great. Thank you. That was awesome. And it was nice. I mean, that's part of the payment in doing comedy because you don't make a lot of money typically. <laughs> but um, this one woman kind of makes a beeline to us. And I, I was expecting at least her to say the same thing. Oh, you were great. That was so wonderful. And she comes up to me and my friends and she says the first words out of her mouth, my son was killed six months ago. Yeah, exactly. What? Like, she said, tonight was the first time I've laughed since. And she gave us a hug and she kissed me on the forehead. I tear up every time I talk about it. But it's like to be able to give that gift to someone, right? To someone who's been in pain, to someone who's been hurting and aching, to give them 90 minutes of reprieve of that. Like, that's so powerful. Um, I've also had people come up to me after giving a, a lecture within the university umbrella and just being so grateful that it was a conversation that included them. You know, same session, um, I had two different people come up. One was a very militant Black lesbian who was like, I am so glad that you came here and you said this. Everybody needed to hear that. I hope it really hit home. And then this lily white guy from Utah came up and he goes, you know, Thank you, Ms. Foster. He goes, this was the first time I ever felt included in a conversation about diversity. And I'm like, that, that's, that's what this is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be, we are so similar. You know, I lecture at Stanford University. Um, I was a scholar for the, a luminary from the Knight Hennessy Scholars Program. And I got to sit on a lecture by an adjunct biology professor. And I sat in, A, because I was curious about his topic. He was sharing about DNA, uh, gene editing, and CRISPR, which can be, you know, kind of controversial. We're talking about either eliminating a horrific, painful disease like sickle cell anemia, anemia, or or creating designer babies. Like it's a, it's a, it's the whole spectrum of wow. Okay, um, but I, I stayed because I, I wanted to be able to take a fact to my audience about how close we were genetically. And I said, this guy would know this, like, this is straight from the horse's mouth. So I'm like, how, how, how close are we? I told him what I did and, and who I spoke to. He goes, Kareth, we are 99.99986% the same. I go, wait a second. I go, so we're fighting over four ten thousandths of a percentage point. He goes, because in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, that's like, you know, melanin content, hair texture, eye color. What? He goes, no, that's not even that. That four ten thousandths of a percentage point has to do with our chromosomes and chromosomal anomalies, right? Like if someone has Down syndrome versus someone who doesn't. I mean, mind blown. And yet we make such a big deal out of these little things, these little differences. Somebody's gender, somebody's skin color, somebody's accent, somebody's eye shape. What? Are we completely out of our minds? That's that's the great question, right? It seems well, I like think we've been taught. We've been trained. Let's be honest. I mean, we're constantly being barraged by 
be fearful, right? Be afraid of people who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who don't vote like you, who don't love like you. So we have to, we have to stand up to that and say no more. That's not acceptable. I'm not buying into that narrative or that paradigm. No more. So then right now, you and I need to start a movement because no more is, is right. It is just so toxic to put the news on, to read a newspaper, to anything. And it's so divisive. In my 52 years, I've never seen this country more divided, you know, probably since the Civil War. And it's outrageous. It's disgusting, quite frankly. And I appreciate the work that you're doing and for standing up for this because uh, it has to be done. You know, you talk about adversity and you just mentioned the word, um, you know, you referenced the lily white male from, from Utah. And he said, first time he felt included. And that's what we have to start doing. And it's, you know, like you said, we've been beaten over the head for, for decades, maybe centuries. Now it's time to beat back and start using the word IN instead of DIV. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm in. We're going to do this. We're doing it together. Awesome. You got a partner. Thank you. So, I can't do this by myself. <laughs> no. It, it, well, it takes a village, right? It does. It does. Well, we're a village of two right now, but we'll keep growing. So I'd like to run through a few of your presentation titles and have you share a few thoughts on each one. So first, let's start with pivot to your purpose. Is it about adapting the post-2020 COVID world or something more than that? Um, it, it, it was, initially it came about that title because of what was happening during 2020 um, and, and having to really switch gears, right? Which so many people did because obviously it was, an international, a global experience. Now, while everybody didn't have the same exact experience, everybody was affected in some way or another. And there was loss. There was grief. There was loss of connection. There was loss of normalcy, right? And so we had to figure out how we were going to, A, get through that and pass that, and what we were going to do to make sure that, um, you know, what had been disrupted, either doesn't get disrupted in the future, or we have a um, an avenue to 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 better um, recover, right? When something like that happens, and so that's what pivoting is about. Yes, it is about what happened in 2020, but it's also like you're going to have incidents in your life. You're going to have loss. You're going to have death. You're going to have a job change. Um, you're going to have relationships that go south. You may have a kid that has you know, a learning disability or autism, you have an aging parent, you know, there's so many things that happen to us that we have to figure out how to pivot around. And that doesn't mean that it has to be the um, the, the death knell, right, for our lives or for our careers, or for, you know, how, how we approach something. So if we can learn how to pivot, if we can learn how to resolve things and solve problems. And yeah, that means actually asking for help sometimes. I think so many people think they have to do something all on their own. That's that's ridiculous. We just said it takes a village and it really does. And the next one is what makes or breaks an authentic connection? What is an authentic connection and why are we authentic connections so important? Authentic connections are important because if you're living in this fake world, right, the world of facades where you're just giving pleasantries to people and not really thoughtfully communicating, um, then when one little incident happens, it's going to fester and it's going to snowball and it's going to turn into a powder keg and then an HR issue. 
Um, and and I'm, I'm speaking, obviously, about the workforce, but it happens in families, too. Right. And instead of an HR issue, it could be <laughs> a divorce. Um, but the last thing you want to do is have irreparable damage to any kind of relationship. So if you can be authentic, if you can share your real true feelings, which does mean, yeah, it means being vulnerable sometimes, but it also means having grace and extending kindness and forgiveness because we are human. We are fallible. We're not perfect beings. And if we could understand that about ourselves and then understand that about others, that's where the authenticity comes into the conversation. You know, you're probably the sixth or 10th guest I've had in the show mention having grace. And it's just something we don't think about. No. Uh, and I don't know why. I don't know if we've just become rewired differently, um, but something we need to remind ourselves of, unfortunately. We do. We do. And the last one I think is going to be my favorite one, which you touched on earlier. You can be perfect or you can be happy. Does life really come down to those two choices? <laughs> well, that's the title of the book that I wrote, uh, actually in 2020 while I was pivoting. Um, and I'll give you a little background. It came, I heard that expression right after I'd given birth to my first child, um, who even though she was born healthy, we had some a little bit of complications afterwards. And there were some things that I did that I just didn't know uh, that almost cost her her life. I was trying to nurse and I wasn't successful and I didn't have the proper information. And she she survived and she's a, an amazing, thriving young lady now. But I was beating myself up mercilessly. And one of my best friends came to visit me and she goes, look, Karen, you can be happy or you can be perfect. I choose happy. And while, you know, the heavens should have opened up and a chorus of angels should have started singing because I was just like, oh, what a nice thing for my friend to say to try to make me feel better. But it always was in the back of my head. Now, I juxtaposed it to you can be perfect or you can be happy. And I thought about it like for years, I thought about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about how much of my life I'd spent trying to be perfect. The perfect daughter, the perfect student, the perfect friend, the perfect girlfriend, the perfect employee, right? And what at what cost? Well, certainly there was some money involved, expenses, trying to you know look the perfect way or do the wear the perfect outfit. Um, it cost me confidence, it cost me self-expression, um, it cost me peace, and it cost me happiness. So the idea is, you know, you can be perfect, you can be happy. Spoiler alert: there is no such thing as perfect. Um, but happiness is a choice. Now there's a caveat to happiness and that is that it's not a constant and that's okay. Like we have to also remember in society, you know, we turn on the commercials and we see the people smiling in the TV shows and the, but we also see how many drugs for depression, <laughs> right? So we think, oh, it's, it's not okay to be depressed. Something's wrong with me. That's ridiculous. It is Okay to not feel good. It is okay to not want to get out of bed for a couple of days, three weeks. Yeah. You should call someone. Right. But you know, life is, it's like that heartbeat monitor, right? We've all seen the EKG and the movies are in person and you got your highs and you got your lows. And when you got your high, you enjoy the heck out of it. And when you got your lows, you know, it's temporary. The only time we are in trouble, just like on that monitor is when we got a straight line and nothing's moving and nothing's happening. And we, that's what we need to remember. And we need to, you know, not just have grace with other people, but have grace with ourselves. We are so hard on ourselves. We wake up in the morning and look in the mirror. And the, usually the first thing we say is something horrible, horrible. Oh, look at that blemish. Look at those rolls. Look at that wrinkle, right? We would never say that to other people, hopefully. 
And if anybody said that to us, we'd be like, who raised you? Right? So it has to start with us. This work has to begin on the inside. That's the whole point of inversity. All of this work has to begin with you. You're never going to just change somebody's mind. But you can reach somebody in their heart and you can change your heart. You followed a bit in your mom's footsteps and also founded a nonprofit organization. Yours is the Foster Russell Alliance for Meaningful Expression. Why did you create the alliance and what's its mission? So I created the frame, if you will, um, because I saw how on college campuses there were so many students who were literally afraid to talk, afraid to speak up, afraid to share their voices. You'd mentioned in my intro, I've been in two documentaries. One is called Can We Take a Joke? Um, which my husband says if he'd made it, it'd be the shortest film ever because it would just be a bunch of people going, no, uh-uh, no, <laughs> no, we can't take a joke. <laughs> And the other one was no, no safe spaces with uh, Dennis uh, Prager and, and Adam Carolla. And, you know, having spoken on so many college campuses and being involved with amazing organizations like FIRE and the Heterodox Academy, all organizations that promote um, and support free expression. And that doesn't mean like we pick a side, like it's nonpartisan. Um, I'm a very nonpartisan person. You know, if I had to pick a political party, I'd go back to Thomas Paine, you know, common sense <laughs> party. Can we do that? <laughs> Um, and so the idea is, you know, to allow people to, again, not be siphoned into a category, but let people have their voice and encourage them to have a voice. Because the more we shut people down, the less communication we have, the less unity we have. If we're not talking to each other, how can we come together? It's not your first book, but you've written a children's book, Leela Finds Love, and that's coming out soon for our listeners. Why did you write a children's book? Was that not let for you, you know, a matter of expanding your audience or something just completely different? It was me being in love with my little Chihuahua Leela and having this brilliant moment of hysterical genius. Uh, it's in prose and it's it was a, it was just silly. It was about her dating life, um, like that happens. But she had some suitors that really liked her, but she, you know, it took a little while to find the one. Um, unfortunately, he passed away recently, but. That being said, I just, I love doing things that are whimsical. I mean, why just, again, be put into one category as you know, serious speaker or just comedian? Like, why not, you know, do what comes to your heart and your mind, express yourself. And that's what that book is, an expression. So I've gone through your background, through the introductions for the beginning of the show. And then when we came back from the break and it took about five minutes each time. Uh, and like you said, somehow I did it all one breath. Where do you find the time to do everything you do? Well, this is what I tell my audiences, especially young women. Uh, you can have it all, just not at the exact same time. <laughs> and I think that isn't just applicable for women, but for men too. You know, we have so much pressure on us to have this perfect life that does not exist or the appearance of one. And, you know, we have to understand that just like, you know, nature, there are seasons, right? There are seasons where you kind of go in and hibernate. There are seasons when you're blossoming and you're creating. There are seasons when you're you're planting, you're you're planting seeds um, for something to to come to fruition. And you know, the best advice that I can offer and share is, you know, don't judge yourself. Don't be don't compare yourself to other people either, but don't be so hard on yourself. Just, you know, do what you can. You know, certainly, you know, don't strive for perfection, strive for excellence. And going back to your humor background, 
you believe that humor can heal divisions in the workplace. But, you know, many HR complaints are the result of someone's failed attempt at humor. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, maybe it was a terrible attempt by Imus. You know, how do we address that in the workplace? Well, again, by bringing some grace into the conversation, um, we're not going to say everything perfectly. And usually the safest bet is to to vet. Through, I mean, have a filter, right? Think about what you want to say. Think about it before you say it. Run it through your mind. You know, obviously, we are not mind readers. We don't know how other people are going to receive something. But usually, if it's something that is about you, you know, that's always kind of a safe bet, right? A little, um, you know, and I'm not saying, you know, be derogatory toward yourself. But, you know, if you can laugh at yourself, other people can usually laugh too. And that doesn't mean you have to make yourself the class clown, right? But, you know, just showing that you have a sense of humor, that you're not taking yourself so seriously, lets other people be relaxed enough to, to do the same. Well, I know after our conversation today that our listeners are going to want to join our movement. And so for people in the audience who want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get in touch with you and how can they do that? I love that question. Thank you. Um, so my company is Inversity Solutions and inversitysolutions.com is the website. My email is Kareth at Inversity Solutions. And I have an amazing team so that if I miss something, it doesn't fall through the cracks. Um, someone will catch it. All of my social media handles, my LinkedIn is at Kareth Foster. Um, that's a great place to reach me. Um, not so much on Facebook as much as I used to be, um, but Instagram is also at Kareth Foster. Uh, same with Twitter. I should be better at Twitter, but it's, it's, it's like a cesspool of like, like crazy. Like you kind of go down the rabbit hole and it's like, what is happening? And why is everybody fighting? Like, I, I don't have time for that. Gareth Foster, thank you so much for being with us today and for an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. And thank you for starting this movement, Orient Together. And thanks to our audience for joining us on this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.